You're listening to Formby Podcast. In this podcast, we're at St. Peter's Church. It's Heritage Week. They're on their 275th anniversary of a building being on that site. Thanks to Reverend Anne Taylor, the vicar of St. Peter's, for allowing Formby Podcast to join them for this event. Voices from the Grave. Each grave has been researched and certain ones have been chosen. It's the third time that St Peter's have done this with the characters in the graveyard. Parishioners act out different characters that have been chosen. In this episode, we begin in St Peter's Church. Ted, who has written the script for the Voices from the Graveyard, introduces us and welcomes us to St Peter's Church. In my time there were galleries round those three walls. There was no lovely sanctuary and chancel and choir and certainly no Formby Chapel. That was built by one of my successors the Reverend Lonsdale Formby. Now the Formbys have been, as a family, in this area since the 12th century, since the Viking times. And when our name was De Formby, if you go into the Formby Chapel, you'll see a brass plaque and you'll see our name started off De Formby. And that means Forney's Settlement, because B in Danish or Viking is a townland or a settlement. So we came here in the 12th century, and we have been living here, as you'll hear, up to 1958, when the last squire of Formby uh, died, and that was the end of the line. Me, I'm the Lord of the Manor of Ravennells, Formby, and Magol. I'm your local squire, and I'm also your local vicar. And I'm going to introduce you to some of my parishioners who are in the graveyard here. Two of them were actually my parishioners when I was here as vicar. The first one is William Brown, and then there's the schoolmaster, Abraham Patterson. So if you follow me out, I'm going to introduce you to William Brown, who was the keeper of the lifeboat station. He's going to tell you all about some of the wrecks and the work of the lifeboat station, and about the lighthouse in Formby. Did you know that Formby had a lighthouse? Yeah, yeah. yeah you did. Well, you're better informed than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, come out here and we'll meet William Brown, the lighthouse, the lifeboat station keeper. Come out and uh, we'll hear morning, what William Brown has to tell us. So, come close so that you can hear what he has to say. We have indeed, we have indeed, the power of prayer. <laughs> well, thank the good Lord for the weather, at least it's dry and not too cold. Right, hello everybody. Good afternoon. I want to tell you just a little bit about the lifeboat, the Formby lifeboat. You may already know or you may not know that the Formby lifeboat was certainly the very first lifeboat station in Great Britain. 
almost certainly the very first one in the world. It opened for business in 1776. Now I, by the way, I should have introduced myself, I'm William Brown and I was superintendent of the lifeboat in 1799. Now, during, well, I was actually the third uh, superintendent. I think I'm just, Mr. Scaresbrick, I think, might, well have, might yes. well have been the first superintendent in 1776. Now, quite clearly, when you go onto the beach today and you look out, you can see a lovely vast expanse of nice sand and the tides out. The sea, calm, it looks peaceful. But in my day, it was very, very different. Liverpool was beginning to get busy. More and more ships were coming in. No dredging of the channels in those days. So they had to negotiate the Formby Channel, which ran along the coast and really was the shape of a bottle. It had a very narrow neck and in storms, the sand dunes or the sand banks rather that protected the channel moved about a bit. So it was not unusual for vessels to get into difficulties and to, and that obviously, unfortunately, a lot of poor souls passed away, they couldn't get away, and there was nothing to rescue them in those days. So, with the lifeboat station, and I, incidentally, as superintendent, lived there, so I was able to see what it was like throughout the year. Uh, if there was any vessel run aground coming to grief, I used to go to the Formby Lighthouse. Oh, and incidentally, uh, I didn't tell you that there was a lighthouse in Formby from 1719. We call it a lighthouse. Actually, it had no light until uh, 1754. <laughs> so it, it, uh, sorry, 18, 1854, not 1754. Well, there was no light there when I was there, anyway. But I used to go up there, and we used to fire a, a, a gun or raise a blue flag. To, uh, to make sure that the, the, the volunteer lifeboatmen knew there was a problem and they could then come down to the lifeboat station together with the horses. The horses incidentally belonged to local farmers, uh, but they used to come down with the lifeboat men and then they were able to take the lifeboat obviously out into the waves. The horses were almost trained, I would say, were certainly very, very good and able to get the, the lifeboat launched. Uh, I didn't mention, I should have said that as a superintendent, I was actually um, on a remuneration. I, I received two guineas a year. Uh, for these days, that's two pound ten shillings, by the way. Uh, the lifeboat men themselves didn't, they, they, they were all volunteers. Uh, the only thing, if they rescued a soul, they got a guinea. They were given one guinea for one person they rescued. That incidentally, the one guinea wasn't each, that was to be shared amongst all of them. So that was the situation as it was at the time. Um, the, obviously the lifeboat came into its own when there were storms, but sometimes the storms were so bad that we couldn't even launch a lifeboat. The storms would prevent us opening the doors. Uh, and it was during one of those storms in about 1736 uh, that the Formby Chapel, which was not very far from the beach at the time, uh, was, was, was um, over, overwhelmed uh, and had to be abandoned. And as a result of that, the present church was built here. Uh, I should point out, incidentally, that it was right opposite the pub, which was over there where the, the big house is. 
Um, and in my day, in 1799, any, any free time I got, uh, I, I was walk up from the lifeboat station and um, go into the pub. A few jars of um, church warden's ale, maybe a couple of tops of rum or something to, to wash it down. Um, and we, we're also very indebted to our reverend here, who took a, a very sympathetic view of the lifeboat. Anybody that was unfortunately perished, they, would, they were allowed to, to come to, to be buried in the, in the church. The vicar didn't inquire too deeply about their background or their religion or, or what have you. And we're really indebted to, to, to him for his help in doing all that. Um, I think the only other thing really to, to say is that it's so do totally different now that if you go down to the beach, do just try and think what it might have been like in those days. Give a thought and a prayer, hopefully, for the people that perished along the beach. The lifeboat station itself um, continued for a good many years, but beyond that, when it, when it finally was no, when it, it, it really um, came out of use because it was very difficult to launch the lifeboat here because of the, the wide sandy beach. Uh, and obviously we needed horses to get it across. But the time came when there were, it was easier to, to do that from the other side of the water. So the Forby lifeboat uh, really st stopped being of, of any practical use. However, I should say there was a cafe along, or a building alongside that was used as a cafe until quite recently. Uh, not necessarily to be confused with the one at the other end of Victoria Road where the, um, the cafe there, the pine tree cafe, kept going until the 1960s. So next time you're down on the beach, think about it, be careful and mind how you go. And he and I would go down to the beach whenever there were shipwrecks coming in and people in trouble and we would uh, try to minister to the poor sailors who were injured. One particular night there was this very, very heavy storm, very strong storm, and the lifeboat men were, were dithering about whether they should go out or not. And I said to them, I'll go out with you and we'll be all right. And they took one look at me and they said, we've enough trouble looking after ourselves without looking after you as well. Now we're going to go from sea to schools and I want to meet another of my parishioners up here, um, Abraham Patterson, who was the headmaster of the first school in Formby, way down in the village. And he's going to tell you a little bit more about how he was the headmaster, what he was paid, and the unruly children. He's still a bit cross as a school teacher, so don't talk, don't interrupt him. Uh, he's, he can be a bit grouchy at times. Well, come up and meet Abraham Patterson. He's an unruly adult as well. <laughs> Good afternoon. Good afternoon. My name is Abraham Patterson. I'm of Cumbrian stock. The year is 1778. And I have just been appointed head of the school, Formby Free School. You might know it on the site of the, that, that Balti house, I believe, in Formby, opposite that food emporium. Waitrose <laughs> down that part of the world. Now, 
I was appointed by the Reverend Lancelot Graham, along with Henry Tyra, who was parish clerk at that time, along with, <clears throat> I might add, 35 good citizens of Formby. Now, the citizens of Formby, very proud of their school, which was built about 100 years ago in the 1600s. Fine building it is too. But in those days, there was no public money to educate your children. You had to pay. Well, that was until ooh, 1703, when a Richard Marsh of London donated 400 pounds, the interest of which was to pay for the teachers. Thus, I take the interest from 300 pounds and the under teacher, Mr. Whitehead, he gets the interest from 100 pounds. I think you'll agree with me, that's fair. <laughs> but moving on <clears throat> swiftly, in the, uh, the grammar school in which I teach, uh, we teach classics, English, and accounts. And of course, the other school is the, what you know, the primary school. Now we have 130 pupils on roll, and I believe there are plans for a bigger building. Indeed, exciting times. Now up in heaven, I've been keeping an eye on things. And I note that in about 1812, at Formby Hall, there was a schoolroom opened on a Sunday. And it was opened by the daughters of Richard Formby. Now, this schoolroom proved to be so popular that they had to employ a teacher, an Esther Brown. She was very successful and the school opened for two and a half days for a week. Now, to be fair to Richard Formby, he donated 300 guineas for the upkeep of the school where they used to teach scripture, sewing, and good manners, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> I wish they could do that these days. <laughs> Moving on, Mary Formby, along with her brother, the Reverend Miles Formby, opened a female school on Paradise Lane in 1850. Eight years later, opposite the school, the National Boys' School was opened. Now the two lived side by side until January 1951, when the head teacher was Mr. Russell Brown, and the two schools amalgamated to be one, mainly on the boys' side. And in fact, the uh, female school is now the church hall. Just under 50 years later, 2005, Holy Trinity and St. Peter's School amalgamated on the St. Peter's School site and is now known, or you will now know it, as Trinity St. Peter's. Well, that's your history lesson for today. Class dismissed. <laughs> Thank you.
have mentioned my lovely daughter Mary, who had the school in Holby Hall. She's buried over there, on, in that tomb over there, where I will be, or maybe I already am buried. <laughs> I get mixed up with the years. My sister, um, Lord, she would have been my great uh, granddaughter, even had a house built down there called the Hay. But it all came to nothing, it fizzled out. Formby didn't return to its original state because more and more people started coming, especially the rich businessmen from Liverpool. And they started building their houses down in Victoria Road. We're going to meet somebody who lives in Victoria Road. Well, even the posher part of Victoria Road, Sherburn Road. And this is Ruby Moore's, the wife of Sir John Moore's, whom you will know about. So she's waiting for us down at her grave, just down the path here. You shall begin. Excellent. Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Ruby Moores. I'm the wife of Sir John Moores, better known as the uh, owner of the Liverpool Halls. Now, pardon me for my notes, but my memory is not what it was. <laughs> with a title like Sir John, you might expect my husband was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Far from it. Sir John's father and grandfather were in fact bricklayers. And John left school at 13 to become a messenger boy in the post office in Manchester. He then became a telegraphist and served in the Navy during the First World War as a wireless operator. But it was after the war that he showed his true colours as an entrepreneur. When he worked for the commercial cable company, he was posted to Waterville in County Kerry, that's in Ireland, <laughs> in the early 1920s. He set up a number of local businesses, including selling golf balls to golfers on the local courses. Smart, eh? His big breakthrough came with the establishment of Littlewood Pools. It was hatched up by John and two colleagues in the cable company and named after one of them, Colin Littlewood. At first, it didn't do very well. And John brought out his two friends to become the sole owner. Smart move. It was a big gamble, but I told him I would rather be married to a man who is haunted by failure rather than one who is haunted by regret. Mm. Along with his brother Cecil, you can see their statues on Church Street in Liverpool. Well, they both made a tremendous go of the pools and it made John a millionaire, <laughs> which was something very rare in the 1930s. <coughs> and then he set up the Littlewoods mail order store. I suppose for the younger amongst you, you could call it a 1930s version of Amazon. <laughs> Littlewood catalogues were famous. And the more mature amongst you might have had one or two in your home in the past. <laughs> yes, I think so. Then he went on to open stores as well. Over 50 by 1952. But John's health deteriorated 
and our two sons, John Jr. and Peter, became directors and helped run the business. John Jr. was involved here in St Peter's and helped to initiate the first stewardship campaign to raise money for the church in 1960. In true Moore style, he tripled the income of the parish in a year. <laughs> Pardon me. Okay. In 1960, my husband handed over the pool side of the business to his brother Cecil. I'm nearly afraid to tell you that here in St Peter's, my husband became chairman of Everton Football Club <laughs> in 1960. He resigned as chairman in 1965, not to become a red, oh no, but because my health also began to deteriorate. I died on the 8th of September 1965, but he remained a firm supporter of <laughs> the other sport he loved was baseball and he also bred Aberdeen Angus Bulls on our 300 acre farm here in Formby. John was knighted in 1980, 15 years after my death, so sadly I never became Lady Ruby Moores. Oh well, I'm in a higher kingdom now. <laughs> John's name lives on in the Liverpool John Moores University, which was once the Liverpool Polytechnic. He died at our family home, Fairways, in Shireburn Road on the 25th of September 1993. He was 83. A memorial service was held in Liverpool Cathedral because St Peter's wouldn't have been able to accommodate all of those who wanted to attend. My husband's story is a real rags to riches tale, proving what he once said. Men and women can, if they want to, enough, do anything. Well, I've kept you all long enough. John will be wondering where I've got you. <laughs> 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 land around Formby, including land that's now the Woodvale RAF station. And uh, in 1941, it was the fighter airfield to protect Merseyside. Uh, it was the 608 Squadron. It was also used by American aircraft that were bringing soldiers for rest and recreation in Southport. And they would land in Woodvale and then they would disperse around Southport for hotels and boarding houses for a while to recover from the war. It was also used as the stopping point for prisoners of war, for German prisoners of war, before they would be repatriated. And they would stay in the Formby area. Over there is Beryl Bainbridge's mother's grave and she told us that her daughter Beryl, the author, the actor, who used to be in Coronation Street at one time, when she was a teenager, she used to meet up with the German prisoners of war down in the pine woods. <laughs> and she'd come back singing Lily Marlene in German. <laughs> Anyway, in 1946, 6-1-1 Squadron uh, took over uh, Woodvale, and that's where our next graveyard resident comes in. <coughs> Fly Flying Officer Griffiths. Flying Officer Robert Griffiths of 6-1-1 Woodvale Squadron. Present. I am, um, although I have a Commonwealth war grave, I was not killed in the war though I did serve in the Royal Navy Army Reserve. 
let me tell you my story. I have here my uh, my diary, just in case my memory does not see fit. I am a Crosby boy, and at the beginning of the Second World War, I volunteered for service with the RAF and was attached to 26th Squadron on the Salisbury Plain. They put me on air gunner's duties, but what I always wanted to do was fly. Eventually, I was selected for pilot training in 1942, and I thought my dream would be realised, but it wasn't. Though I was trained to be a pilot in the US and Canada, I was put on instructional duties rather than being allocated to the front line, where I could have had a more active role. That was what I really wanted. I was fairly cheesed off, I can tell you, so I resigned from the RAF in the late 1943 and took up a commission as a sub-lieutenant in the air branch of the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve. At last, I saw some action in the Indian Ocean, attached to the assault escort carrier HMS Amir. I loved every minute of it. It was so exciting. In comparison, life after the war was very dull, even though I had a big motorbike to race around on, and I occasionally got the chance to fly some small aircraft. But it wasn't enough for me, so I applied to join 611 Auxiliary Squadron, just up the road in Woodvale from here, and I was soon commissioned as a flying officer. On a grey Saturday afternoon in 1948, I took off in a Spitfire to do some high altitude practice. Sergeant Doc Morgan was in another Spitfire doing the same practice. After half an hour, we were at 21,000 feet above the Ribble Estuary. Doc Morgan asked if we should hire, and I said I would check my oxygen equipment. And that is all I remember. Doc Morgan saw my plane rolling from side to side, then go into a spin before going into a steep dive. He was trying to radio me, but I was unconscious. He followed me down as far as he could go and saw my Spitfire crash into a field near Freckleton. The plane exploded on impact. Personnel from the nearby Wharton airfield rushed to the scene, but it was all too late as far as me and my plane were concerned. I was buried with full military honours here at St Peter's. Pity my poor wife and daughter. Some 40 years later, in 1996, the Lancashire Aircraft Investigation team began a dig to recover the, wreck, the, wreck, the wrecked plane. My parachute was still intact. I had obviously blacked out before the plane started spinning and diving. They also found my wallet with my driving licence and a lock of my daughter's hair. These items were eventually returned to my wife, who had moved back to her native Scotland. We Griffiths were unlucky. My brother, also a flying officer in 24 Squadron, lost his life when his Dakota crashed in December of 1944. He was on his way to India. Parts of my Spitfire can now be seen in the, can the Lancaster County Museum in Preston. Flying officer Robert Hugh Price Griffiths. The last operational flight for a Spitfire took place from Woodvale in 1957. Now, I mentioned about our Formby land. I want to introduce you next to the last squire who lived in Formby Hall, John Formby. John Frederick Lonsdale Formby. Don't know why he didn't have the name Richard, because when you visit the 
formed beside chapel, you'll see a brass plaque and you'll see all, most of our families were named Richard. So I don't know why he was called John. I don't know why he had his grave over there and not with the rest of us formies in the tomb beside the church. But come over and we'll hear his story. Uh, this is John. Um, I suppose in those days they were more egalitarian and he didn't want to be buried with the rest of us, but this is his grave, one of the last graves in the new section that Lonsdale gave to the church. So, John Formby, last squire of Formby Hall. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. I've uh, spent the morning out with the estate, looking at the estate, and it's in good fettle, I'm glad to inform you. Um, since my demise in 1958. So my name is John Frederick, no K in Frederick, Lonsdale Formby, and I was the last squire resident in Formby Hall. I died on the 19th of December 1958, just before Christmas. For you that have been into the church already and maybe read the plaques about Formby, there's a bit of information about my death and it says that I died with no issues. Well, let me tell you, it was an issue to me. <laughs> On my death, the estate was passed over to my nephew who lived in Australia, and we all know why people ended up in Australia. So I'm afraid to say that he didn't return back to Formby Hall, um, and it was left, and it just went into disrepair completely. However, in the 1970s, it was bought out by John Moores Jr., the son of John Moores of Little as Paul's fame, who I believe you would have already heard more about this afternoon as well. And he leased that Formby Hall out to um, uh, rest home for children from the deprived areas of Liverpool. And that home lasted for about 10, 10 years until in the 1980s, the whole estate was actually sold off. Uh, and that was the end of the connection with Formby Hall. The end of a long dynasty of a, of a family that gave its name to this village. The Formbys have been in the area since Viking times and have occupied the site at Formby Hall since the 13th century. The present house was built by William Formby in 1523, with various additions added in the 18th and the 19th century. As you had heard, as I heard Richard say as he came across, and many of my forebears do have this, uh, the forename of Richard, the Reverend Richard Formby, Vicar of St Peter's from 1795. His son, Dr Richard Formby, who was the founder of Liverpool Medical School, and that was in 1834. But perhaps the most famous Richard Formby actually lived back in time in the 15th century. He was a big man. He was seven feet tall, which you would think was big for today. But back in the 15th century, that was like a giant. He was also told that he was a big giant with a big heart. He was a soldier, but he wasn't just any ordinary soldier. He was actually the armour bearer to King Henry IV. And in fact, saved the king's life in the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403. He died four years later, not in battle, but due to the Black Death. But he was so important that he was actually buried in York Minster. His grave slab unfortunately was cracked many years later in 1829 with the great fire of that York Minster. And a replica still lies in York Minster today that can be seen. However, his actual grave slab now lies in St Luke's Church here in Formby. Why is it there? Peter's and Peter's has always been the Formby Church, so why has it ended up in St Luke's? It's got to have been a mistake made somewhere along the lines. <laughs> However, there is a link with St Luke's. 
So Luke's was, born, um, was built by another Formby. That was by the Reverend Miles Formby. He was vicar of Mogul, and I'm sure it was just a terrible mix-up that that slab ended up in St Luke's and not in St Peter's. Talking about other ancestors of the Formby line, did you know that my great-grandfather, John Formby, and also another John, that name does live on there, actually started the Grand National Steeplechase in Mogul, now obviously run at Aintree. I also inherited various titles of being resident in Formby Hall. I was Lord of the Manor of Raven Mills, Lord of the Manors of Formby and Mogul, and this honours was passed down the Formby line for every resident at Formby Hall. <coughs> Formby Hall lives on today, maybe in a different format and without the Formby family, and I'm afraid I was the last squire living at Formby Hall. Thank you, John. And um, if anybody wants to lift the uh, grave slab in St. Luke's and bring it to St. <laughs> Peter's, we won't tell anybody. <laughs> John is probably too modest to tell you that he was also a Justice of the Peace. He was a councillor in Lancashire County Council. He was patron of the Scouts and took on many civic duties. But perhaps one of our most famous sons we're going to uh, meet next his grandson is here, actually, and it's the famous Jimmy Lowe, the Asparagus King. He's waiting for us down there, so rather than do a detour, if you walk across the grass, we come down to Jimmy Lowe. Go up the path there. <laughs> Welcome. Hello there. Well, I'm Jimmy Lowe, the Asparagus King, and you may have seen my statue, the wooden statue, and the pine bush holding me. We made Thornby famous around the country. You know, asparagus. Oh, I'm not boasting. Well, I haven't. <laughs> I won many competitions for asparagus in the Vale of Eves and Shoals. In fact, was national champion six times. And it would have been seven, except there was a fall of snow in May. And that was in 1935. Well, there was another very famous man. Ah, well, yes, now I started, well, I didn't start it, but I started with a milk round. And I was growing fruit at Devon Farm at Belltop. And then we decided to start to grow asparagus. It was our family farm down the end of Victoria Road, Pine Tree Farm. And uh, in that great project, another famous Formby man was very helpful. And that was Mr. Thomas Fresh. No, no, he didn't work on the farm. He was the inspector of nuisances for the city of Liverpool. And one of his great responsibilities was to get rid of all the, oh, sorry, the night soil <laughs> from the city. And the way he did it was to bring it by train to Formby. And then he had a special station built near his house, a fresh meal station. But I don't suppose it was quite as fresh as you might have wished <laughs> when the wagons loaded with the sewage arrived to be offloaded. But then it was spread on the land, and so it was spread on my land, and it made it wonderful fertile, especially for asparagus. And of course, then there was Freshfield Station, handy for me, so I could send my asparagus all around the sort of the country. And you know, Formby, you, you could go in the shop and you ask for Formby asparagus and they knew you wanted the best. Mm -hmm. That's the way of it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I wasn't just 
a man that grew asparagus. I also serve locally on the parish council. And election time, I put my posters up. Vote for Lowe, the man you know. <laughs> and you know, there was a scandal. Came along and vandalised one of my posters. He wrote on it, the wages of sin is death. The wages of low is starvation. <laughs> Kick of the man. <laughs> anyway, eventually, as it happens to all of us, I go to Pearly Gates and I hand one of my bits of paper to St. Peter. Give me a load of the man you know. <laughs> he, he looks at you. Nah, I definitely know you. You go to one of my churches, the one in Formby. Oh, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy Lowe. <laughs> Just one more to go, and we go back towards the church, which is very appropriate, because we're going to meet one of the previous vicars of St. Peter, not of my family, but a man called Reverend Charles Wright. Rather a sad story because he didn't get on with the people and the people didn't get on with him. And he died of a broken heart as a result. Oh. Let him tell you his story. A bit of a, a, a modest gravestone for a former vicar of St. Peter's, but perhaps its size and its obscurity in the graveyard reflects the story that Charles Wright is now going to tell you. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's hard to follow a vicar who has done a lot for the church. They expect even better from you. And it's even harder when he suffers a sad tragedy and leaves the church. You really feel frustrated and you have to try and live up to his example. That was my lot when I was appointed vicar of St Peter's here in 1914. My predecessor was the Reverend Thomas Bishop. He came after the great Reverend Lonsdale Formby, who was vicar here for 48 years, part of the Formby family and also vicar. Lonsdale Formby had put in the new sanctuary that you can see at the back here and the Formby Chapel and the choir. At the end of his life, his strength was failing. Thomas Bishop was his curate, and he did most of the work. But um, when Lonsdale died, then Thomas Bishop took over as reverend, and he continued to improve the fabric of the church. We had a flat ceiling in the main body of the church, plaster ceiling. He removed that and put in the wooden ceiling that you actually see today. He also removed the old pews and put in the new ones, which are still there, all there today. There, were, there are now three aisles previously that only been two. Also, he put in gas lighting the previous incumbent was very much against that, but he decided that it was a very good thing to have for evening services. So he put in gas lighting. And it was during his time that 
the house opposite the church became the vicarage. Uh, Lonsdale Formby had lived in it and it had originally belonged to the Formby family but it became the vicarage in Thomas Bishop's time. Well, so Thomas Bishop did a lot for the church but then sadness struck. His little baby boy died and he was really struck, awestruck by that and his heart was broken, poor man. Later his wife died too and he decided he was going to leave St Peter's and he retired to Shropshire. So his were very big shoes to fill but before he went he actually had a vicar's stall, prayer stall made in memory of his young son and his wife and if you go in the church you can see the present vicar's stall is still there with the plaque on the front which tells you about it. So I decided that when I came to the church I was going to try and make my mark and there are two things I wanted to do. One was to modernise the services and the other was to modernise the building. The services were very dull and old-fashioned, really a legacy of the Formby family who didn't want to change anything except what they wanted to change. <laughs> so I decided I was going to take them up the candle and I introduced a more high church style of service and I'm pleased to say that in that I was successful. However, my other proposals went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> I wanted to remove the three balconies around the church uh, because they did nothing for the church and they, they hid the Georgian windows which were beautiful and also they weren't in the original plans. I also wanted to make an extension on the right-hand side of the church as you see it now, build a big extension so that we could have special services there, have a little altar at the end of it so smaller services could serve there and also I wanted to restore the door at the back of the church by the tower. I also wanted to remove that awful Victorian porch which uh, blights the landscape. I also wanted to put in a door in the new extension on this side out into the grounds. Well, I also wanted to build a vestry, a new vestry for the vicar and a new one for the choir as well. Well, I managed to persuade the archdeacon and the bishop of my plans but I couldn't persuade the people of St. Peter's. <laughs> they rejected my plans. The only thing they allowed me to do, well, two, uh, they allowed me to put oak panelling in the sanctuary and also to have a new altar built in memory of those who were killed from St. Peter's School and St. Peter's Choir in the Great War. Well, the fact that they didn't let me do a lot of the things I wanted to do really got me down. 
and I was really frustrated. I felt that I could have taken St Peter's really as the head of the uh, area and been a real go-ahead church, <coughs> but unfortunately they were all against me. As a result, I was very frustrated and my health failed really badly and I died in office here in 1928. Now I'm going to come out of character for a minute and be myself. Here today we have a nephew of Charles Wright and his name is John. John Watts. Where are you John? There we are. There's John Watts. He is a real, he's not an actor anymore. He's a real nephew of Charles Wright. So it's lovely to have you John. Thank you. I'm going to close back in character. So as Charles Wright, I say to you, back your vicar, keep her healthy and happy, <laughs> not like poor me. <laughs> <laughs> disagree with that last sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> We've come to the end of our churchyard tour and you have two options which you can take. One is to go in and have a look at the church and particularly the Formby Chapel and there's plenty of merchandise. There's um, church warden's ale, there's tea towels, bags and various memorabilia. Or and you can go to the beer house where there's tea and coffee and cakes and buns awaiting you. So thank you very much for being part of our Voices from the Churchyard and I hope you enjoyed your morning. Thank you. That's a good idea that, wasn't it? It really brings it to life. Yeah, other churches should do so. How amazing was that? bringing to life all of those characters that have lived in Formby for so many years. Join us again on Formby Podcast. Formby Podcast is an independent production. It comes to you free. We'll speak to you next time.